Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. It's a little bit odd right now here in the cavernous sanctuary of four of our team members, my spouse included, and others. You've heard the expression preaching to the choir. We don't even have the choir here. It's just our tech team, our organist. So thank you. Thank you to our team for making this available. I was all ready to share today anyway, and so am delighted to be able to do so as we continue our series on the stories of the life of David, today, The Table. You might know if you've been paying attention, or maybe you were here last Sabbath and noticed today was all set to be communion. And so I'm going to invite you into the mentality of that communion supper through the course of our time together here, though we are, again, not able to do so in our sanctuary. I'm going to invite you to turn as we begin. There's another section of something I want to talk to you about, and uh, I probably have been given just a touch more time to be able to do so, so I'm kind of glad of that. But turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. There is an idea, a concept I'd like for you to consider as we, uh, as we enter into the heart of the month of October. I'd like for you to consider something. There's this passage of Scripture in, in Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas have been traveling. They've been raising up churches. And as is uh, still to this day our custom, as churches, as communities, as fellowships of believers spring to life, an important key, an important idea is that there be leadership that's invested in the body of Christ. And that it's not just a pastor or a traveling evangelist like Paul, but in fact elders, deacons, and so forth. And you might know, if you've been paying attention, some of you have been to a business meeting recently, others of you have received a phone call recently. We just set aside 12 individuals to join in our leadership process that we're reorganizing right now, and we're going to through the the rest of October and into November... Well, here here we are in the book of Acts, and the 23rd verse says this. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting. They turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. This idea that as Paul and Barnabas are raising up the body of Christ, they know pivotal is lay involvement, that that the members themselves are engaged deeply and leading the church, as we are anxious to do today as well. We have a very large church. We have a large pastoral staff, a pastoral team. There is so much that, is, that, that we call upon those pastors to do, but it all crumbles, it all falls, it all fails, unless our church members are engaged and leading in the highest level of leadership is that of eldership, and on and on it goes. There's so much that happens around here. Could not possibly be done if it's all just left up to those professional in ministry. And this idea, this interesting idea, that as Paul and Barnabas set aside these leaders, that they would do so with prayer and fasting and offering them up to God. And so I want to encourage you, we're going to try something a little bit unique through the next, this, this Sabbath included, and then on another five weeks, so six weeks, ending there in the 16th day of November. That, that'll be like the third Sabbath of November. 
will be the final piece of this, and it will involve fasting, but not fasting the way you often might talk about it. Fasting meaning I'm not going to eat solid foods. Instead, I'm just going to have juice or water, or maybe you'd fast from some particular sort of food. We're going to invite you to consider a different sort of fasting. I'm not one who, who just gravitates toward fasting, so this is a challenge to me too. So let me, let me clue you in on this, and to do so, I'd like to invite you to John, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I don't know if you've it's something interesting to try sometime. John 3.16 shows up at football games, baseball games, in the crowds along a, a, a marathon running. John 3.16. Fascinating. If you want to do it sometime, try it. Go into Scripture to each book of the Bible and look at the third chapter and the 16th verse, and you're going to find it's interesting. People have done it. There's a lot of really interesting, meaty, important message in the 16th verse of the third chapter of many of these books, and not the least of these is 1 John chapter 3. Read along in that 16th verse and on. It says this, this is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Could it be that this is how the world around us would know what love is, is because we are the hands and the feet of Jesus, that we would lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. In the 17th verse, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? We can say we love Jesus. We can say we are His, but there's something infectious. There's something life-changing. There's something reordering, reprioritizing about being a follower of Jesus Christ. And this passage suggests that it finds its fruit in our paying attention to the needs of the brothers and sisters around us and when they have material needs that we are touched. We are moved by those things that move the heart of Jesus. So, dear children, this passage finishes, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Now, I've got to say, it strikes me in the conversations I have with those who do not follow Jesus Christ, that they are fairly aware that Christians have a lot to say. Not always that clear that we have love to give. So, Here's what I'm suggesting. I am suggesting an offering fast. Over the next five plus today weeks, ending on the 16th of November, what I want you to consider is not something extreme. You remember not too long ago, we talked about three different kinds of offerings that we take up. One is tithes, which go into the storehouse and, and, and help run quite a number of things. Another is our local church offering in our planned giving, and we would set aside money to give on purpose and scheduled and targeted. Another one is that something hits our heart on a particular day or in a particular moment, and we realize God's calling us to do something about it. This is actually a fourth and very different kind of idea, and it's this that for a small period of time, you practice the art of fasting from something you would normally, naturally, and it's perfectly appropriate for you to spend some money on. Not something massive and monumental, although you'd be surprised, won't I, about how quickly this can add up. Something like this. This is part of what I'm considering. I'm considering because I end up out at meals with some regularity, meeting with people, or going with my wife or family, 
I'm considering doing this, is when I go out to eat and I would naturally get that raspberry lemonade at Olive Garden or somewhere else, what I'm planning on doing is getting water instead and taking note of the $2 or whatever it was I was going to spend on that. Keeping track and letting that build up in a little personal internal accounting system through this October into November. And then at November 16, I'm going to, having having paid attention, having allowed my heart to be drawn to what God's heart is drawn to, I'm going to then put that money toward meeting the material needs of some person for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to be fasting, and it's going to do two things. One, it's going to allow me to meet the needs of that other, but the other thing that we're doing here is we're using it as a fast kind of cleansing, recentering, and rethinking, a trigger in our minds Because when I do that, when I order water at that restaurant, I would have ordered a soft drink or something else. For you, it might be some other form of financial fast. But when I do that, the other thing I'm going to be doing, it's going to be a trigger for me to think about and just offer up a quick prayer for the leaders who are being selected, who are in the process of selecting, who are stepping into leadership, and those who ought to and haven't yet. The lay leaders of our church, the engagement level of our church members, I would really love for you to be praying about that. And so fasting and praying, I'm going to, in, I'm going to invite you to consider an offering fast. Now, you don't need to cement this deal today, but you can know this too. In the worship services between now and the 16th of November, we're going to make uh, apparent to you, we're going to show you four targeted ideas of something we've become familiar with where someone, some group, has a material need that we know is on the heart of God. You might end up deciding there's something else that's really kind of percolating inside of you that you would reach out to, but I'm going to tell you about them. You don't have to worry about it too much because each Sabbath we're going to unveil another one to you. You don't have to respond yet. In fact, we encourage you to let it accumulate as you work your way forward. This, by the way, would be a perfect time to teach your children a little bit about the needs of others and how we sacrifice for the needs of others in a way that's manageable, understandable, So here are the four ideas, the four things that we're aware of that we've decided to target. And by the way, plenty of people might come up with additional ideas, and that's fine. These are the four we're going to promote as possibilities, and then you make a choice for the 16th of November. The first one is there is a project we've become concerned about and interested in in building a school in Laos. That's probably the farthest away any of these projects are halfway around the world, whatever direction you go about. And in fact, a group of individuals who are seeking to teach and to grow the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're in deep need of school building. And so we're going to be promoting that as a possibility. And I encourage you to consider what your small gift can do. The second one is a project, Bibles for Cuba. Did you know they need a, a lot of Bibles in Cuba and the project there, and they are, they are very underfunded in that conference, in that territory, and the, and the work is kind of new, and we are close enough, and we have members in our congregation who are close enough. I'm going to be going to Cuba, my wife and I, as we uh, get into the month of May to help there a little bit, but $4.00. Two of my, two of my uh, raspberry lemonades. 
If I go without those, I would be able to supply a person who doesn't have a Bible with a Bible that actually is printed and it, it appears in just such a way that it, it feels like home to them. It comes to them as a Cuban Bible. Another one, and you, you've probably been paying enough attention to the news to know that there is a lot of desperation from recent hurricane trauma in the Bahamas. So we're getting closer and closer to home here, aren't we? And uh, in, there in the Bahamas, we're going to be partnering with the North American Division with our funds to try to help rebuild. I tell you what, I have no clue. I have n no real understanding of that kind of trauma, except that I've gone to assist at times where hurricanes have wiped through a place, and it is, it is just heartbreaking what people are going through. And then there's this final one. It was brought to our attention by the Social Work Club at Southern Adventist University reaching out to us saying, hey, we've got this project. We were wondering if you might be interested and willing to partner with us. And we were just thinking about this project, the, the idea of a financial fast, and thought, oh, goodness. This would be, this would be, this would be, this would be perfect. Here in our county, the police, child protective services, and social workers on occasion are called into action to alleviate a situation in which a child needs to be removed from the home. You can imagine, if that's the case, it's probably because of def desperate and difficult circumstances, and this could be, by many definitions, the worst day of a young child's life. In that moment, what our social workers have, have shared with us, the normal policy is that a social worker comes and assists with the child leaving that home, and so far the policy has been to show up with a trash bag to help collect that child's things. And our social work students and others in our community have been feeling more and more, boy, that's just not the right way to go. On the most desperate and difficult day for a young child, for them to associate their life as trash. And so they've started a project, a duffel bag project, where for just a few dollars, a couple of soft drinks away, I can purchase a duffel bag for this most desperate and difficult time. So we're going to be unveiling a little bit more, a little bit more what these projects are about. You may come up with something that's on your heart you've been thinking about. It's been nagging on you. But I'm going to encourage you to consider an offering fast over these next few uh, days and weeks, and then we're going to have a call for that offering on the 16th of November as you've been calculating up how you've been fasting from something financial. So I wanted to make sure you knew all about that. I'm glad that we had this opportunity to talk about it. Now we're going to get right into Scripture, and I'm going to invite you uh, in just a couple of minutes to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. But as you do, I'd like to pray over God's Word and the table. So would you bow your head with me? Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the many ways you've blessed us in this community. We take so many things for granted, things like running water, the ability to turn water on in a sink or to flush a toilet. We don't tend to think about it all that much, but there's so many things we are dependent upon, and you supply them so generously in our lives, and today you have supplied a table. We lay claim to this metaphor Lord, no matter what it is, no matter what it is that each person in our listening audience right now is wrestling with and struggling with, Lord God, would you draw near? 
For those of us who have been hit with some form of medical or health difficulty, draw close and draw near and help us to be able to lay claim to the promise that you are the grand and great physician and that you have a plan for our lives. And even when things are going horribly wrong on this earth, you have purchased our safety, our health in eternity. Lord, some of us have had to say goodbye to a loved one recently, maybe even this week. Or maybe we are visiting a deathbed fairly regularly, and we know it's just a matter of time. Lord, help us to lay claim to your story and your power of resurrection. Some of us, it's, it's a little different. Some of us have had just stress. Some of us have begun to doubt ourselves. Some of us have, have struggled in school, and we have thought we are going to be able to accomplish something, and now it seems like maybe we won't. Lord, help us to be able to see through your eyes, but draw close to us. And in these moments we spend in your word, in the scriptures, would you please speak some word over us that would give us momentum, motivation, love, and acceptance today. We're so thankful that we're yours. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So you're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 9. As you do that, uh, just just uh, wondering, how many of you have had some moment, awkward as it is, and you felt like you were not going to fit in? You were not going to be uh, acceptable enough? Maybe you were a little left out. Maybe you walked into a room and everybody's talking and no one sought to include you. There's an inside story. I don't know if you've sat with a group of friends and they all have a shared history that you don't, and they're talking about things and you're just feeling more and more awkward and you don't want to bring it up, but you're just quietly now alone. Yeah, I'm seeing some hands there in the congregation, even with just two or three or four of us. Or maybe you've been on a playground as a little boy, and, and uh, it came time for people to pick teams, and, and you were not picked. A young lady who was left out of the friendship, not invited to the party. I, uh, with, with some regularity, as I have been kind of listening in, as Pastor Chris Eckenroth preaches, there have been a couple of times when he's told stories that end up with my name in it. So I kind of feel like turnabout is fair play here. Uh, that should worry Pastor Chris an awful lot. Uh, but I'm going to try to keep it safe. In fact, this is, a, this is a kind of a nice story about Pastor Chris. He was a college student here at Southern Adventist University in the dormitory right over here, and I was a young youth director, had been working with Chris at summer camp. He went on the first mission trip I ever took anywhere to the Dominican Republic as, I believe, a 16-year-old. And so this particular year, I was coming down to visit the students from my conference who are here at Southern and to do a little recruiting for summer camp, that sort of thing. And I came, and, and uh, I was young enough then to not think it a terrible idea to stay in the dorm room of Chris Eckenroth and John Thomas, who were roommates, and both of them had worked with us at summer camp. And I thought, okay, yeah, this will be awesome. And so I slept on the floor of their room, <laughs> and uh, that was awesome. <clears throat> uh, one afternoon, while I'm down here, Chris says, hey, you want to play some basketball? You want to go play some basketball in the gym? Sure. Yeah, I've got my stuff. We go down to the gym to play some basketball. And there in the afternoon on this particular day, a bunch of individuals, a bunch of guys had assembled at the gym, and they're ready for a pickup game. Now, I'm starting to feel a little awkward. I'm older. That's not hidden from anyone else. Uh, I'm not from here. That's also not a surprise. 
Chris knows me and no one else does. <clears throat> and, uh, and so now I'm thinking, okay, how's this going to go? Because there are too many people there waiting. For, I may not even get to play. I'm not sure how this is going to work, and I'm feeling a little bit awkward. I've been a good basketball player in the course of my life, but I'm also getting a little older at this time of the story. So who knows how this is going to go, and about that time, people line up at the free throw and, and uh, shoot shots to see who the two captains are going to be, and it turns out Chris is one of the two captains. And as I'm standing there kind of awkwardly, Chris, with his first pick, turns and says, I'm taking Pastor Dave. Taking Pastor, nobody else knows who Pastor Dave is. He's got a point so that everybody knows I've just been picked. I'm the first pick, and now I'm thinking, oh boy, wait, whoops, now that wasn't necessarily where I saw this going either. I, I could have been picked third, fourth, fifth. That would, have been, that would have been all fine. I didn't need to be picked first thing, except, you know what? It made me feel accepted. It told me a lot about where my relationship was with Chris, Turns out we won the first couple of games, at least, that we played. I played pretty well. I wasn't feeling so bad, but I thought, wow, that's a gutsy move, Chris. I don't know if you've had that moment where you feel like you're an outsider. I hear it every once in a while from individuals in this community. I read a little prayer card about three or four weeks ago that was put on my desk, and it said, I don't think I can keep coming to this church because... I come and I sit down and we sing and we pray and you preach and I leave alone. I don't say that to scold you. I watch acts of generous community being built with regularity, but you know what it feels like possibly. Some of you definitely, absolutely have been walking around with that feeling these last few days of being alone, not fitting in, not being good enough. And this is the story we drop ourselves into in 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you don't mind going there, that's our home base for the remainder of this short homily that we're going to share. Keep in mind, if we had been uh, with a little bit more water today, this would have ended at a communion table with communion emblems being passed out. It's not going to be today, so that lets the story breathe just a little bit more. But you found your way to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David, in the first verse, David asks this question, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now you need to understand, and some of you know this, David is now king. David is not just king of Judah. He's king of Judah and he's king of Israel. You might remember Ishbosheth, one of the sons of Saul, had been king of Israel. While David was king of Judah for seven years, Ishbosheth was king of Israel. Finally, Ishbosheth is slain, and this is all unified. David is the king over all. You also know David's history, David's interactions with King Saul were not really great over the last bit of time. He's been chased, he's been hunted down, he's had a javelin jammed into a wall trying to target him and pin him to the wall. He has been defamed, he has been run out of home, he has every good deed has been punished with anger rather than kindness. Or maybe there would be a moment where Saul would relapse and seem like his friend. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this, though, Jonathan, amazingly, and David end up deeply 
committed to one another in one of the Bible's great friendships of all time. You recall it by the time it's done. By the way, if you read prior to, to, to the slaying of Goliath, where David, from that point on, the stories in First and Second Samuel seem to all be about how David is this amazing warrior, overcomer of the enemy. But prior to that, there's somebody who is their champion, somebody who does meet with success. Who is that? It's not Saul, although occasionally he wins a battle. No, no, no. The one who is amazing at his followership of God and his leadership of the people is actually Jonathan, and he's the one for whom the crown is intended after Saul. So imagine, imagine the amazement David must feel as Jonathan, who is probably in the area of 30 or so years old, David somewhere around 15 as they meet around the time of the slaying of Goliath. Right after that story of the slaying of Goliath, you will read that Jonathan just really likes this kid. And they end up with a friendship. It must be part mentorship, part friendship. And Jonathan will try to run interference for David as Saul is trying to kill him. Jonathan continually in the ear of the king. He thinks he's got this all staved off until one particular day as Jonathan is advocating for David. No, no, no. Why would you do this? He's done nothing to harm you, father. At that moment, just like he did with David, Saul turns and tries to skewer Jonathan, his very own son, with his javelin because he's just not quite right. Well, Jonathan lets David know, you're going to need to flee. You better run. But he makes a commitment to him. For the rest of our lives, David, no matter what happens, I will look out for your family and you look out for my family. And in fact, I think you, David, this is Jonathan speaking, you, David, should be king of Israel, and I'll be your second. What an amazing, amazing posture of friendship that, as you recall, at the beginning of 2 Samuel, there's a battle, and Saul and Jonathan perish, and they die. Ishbosheth, later king, son of Saul, he dies. So now David is king in the memory of his great friend, and in the spirit of his honoring of Saul, David brings it up again. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul? Is there anybody from the house of Saul I could talk to? I'd love to find somebody to honor. I miss my friend Jonathan. And I wish I could honor him somehow and show kindness for his sake. So the second verse of 2 Samuel chapter 9, Now there was a servant of Saul's house named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, you're, you're Ziba, right? Yes, yes, I am. I'm at your service. He replies, now Ziba must be coming to this conversation with a little nervousness because he served Saul. Usually that's not a huge deal. That shouldn't be a, a big impediment to his future, but now he's being called out. So I don't know. Kings being what they are, this could go horribly wrong. You're Zeba, right? Yes, I'm at your service. The king asked him this. Is there anyone still alive from the house of Saul whom I could show God's kindness? Zeba answered the king, yeah. <clears throat> By the way, Zeba knew this all along, and he's not Spoken up about it before, probably because he knows this descendant of Saul is in hiding. Things don't go well for the descendants of former kings. 
in the countries, in the world around. So Ziba answered the king, there still is a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. And Ziba answered him, he's, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. And so King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And it's this young man named Mephibosheth. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, now you're, you're, Meph you're Mephibosheth, right? And again, he must have been frightened. It's a, it's a crazy, terrible moment. Now, first of all, you need to know if you scroll on back to the fourth chapter of 2 Samuel and the fourth verse, you're going to see a story. You're going to see a little, little story and what ends up happening. I'll just kind of read it to you from, from here in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet, but he wasn't born that way. He was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan's death comes from Jezreel. His nurse, who knows this is not good, there is now no, nothing to protect young Mephibosheth. He is in the line of the king. He would be the next one in line. I'm going to need to scurry him off. We're going to need to hide, whether it's from the Philistines, whether it's from some other warring country, or whether it's from this David that everyone proclaims should be the king. We're going to need to hide. And so she scoops him up. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. And his name is Mephibosheth. That's the fourth verse of 2 Samuel chapter 4. So we drop our way back in to chapter 9. You're Mephibosheth? Have you had a moment where you're standing in front of some impressive person and you know you're not impressive? Have you had that moment when it's test day and everything hinges on this and you feel wildly underprepared? Have you been at a, at a table, at a meal, and people are asking you questions and it just feels to you everybody's smarter than you and they know more than you do and they're cooler somehow and you're just going to be outed? And here's this young man who can't even stand straight, can't walk his way there well. He's crippled because he's had to flee. No fault of his own. And the reason he is crippled is standing in front of him. Even though David didn't issue any kind of decree that should threaten him, he knows, he knows. The reason we ran, he's standing right here. And I wonder how many individuals are frightened to stand before God because of what they think will meet them in the eyes of the Almighty. Their hesitation. I mean, we know we are cripples. We're cripples physically, but we're cripples emotionally. We're cripples spiritually. We're, we're bumbling and fumbling around, and if anyone really knew, it would be disaster. And every once in a while, I had something happen this week that just felt like, oh, how could I have fumbled that worse? And there he stands, facing the almighty King David. You Mephibosheth? <clears throat> yeah. I am I'm at your service, and a cripple works the way his disadvantages require him to work, to fall down to his knees and onto his face. I'm at your service. And David says these words that so many times God greets us with. 
So often, in fact, whenever he sends an angel, almost always the very first words are these same ones. As God comes to us, this God with us of the New Testament in Jesus Christ, the angels will proclaim, Mary, don't be afraid. Joseph, don't be afraid. Hey, don't be afraid. <laughs> and David calls out to young Mephibosheth, don't, don't, whoa, shh, no. I can see it in your eyes. You're scared of me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yes, I know who you are. Yes, I can see you're crippled. Yes, I understand others have said there's no use for you, that you need to hide. I'm asking you, come out of hiding. Come, come to me. I, I will not mistreat you. And this is what I believe more than anything else Jesus wants to say to us. It's always interesting to me how many of us become a little bit uncomfortable at communion time because we've somehow worked things out in our minds so that the God that we would come to the communion table who is offering us life in itself has something in his eyes that is unsafe and threatening. And he doesn't want you here because he knows what others can't know. Oh, he knows and he still invites you to the table, me to the table. Don't be afraid, verse 7, David says to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will show you kindness. In fact, here's what I'm going to do for you, Mephibosheth. I'm going to restore to you. This is unheard of. I'm going to restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Way back, way back, as, as Jonathan first gave friendship and an oath to David, do you know what he did? He took off his robe and he put it on David. And that's not as big a deal to you and I today as it was in those days. But a king and a king in waiting, his robe stood for his kingdom. And Jonathan takes off the robe of the kingdom and puts it on to David. And he says, I'll be your second. I see what God is doing. And David, in this moment, flips that script around echoing and hearing the words of his friend Jonathan. Jonathan saying, I will take care of you. I will protect you. I will look out for your family. If you were to die, just know that, David, I will be your family's protection. And David turns to his friend in figure and says to Jonathan, ah, I've got you. I will protect your family. I will take care of you. And so he says, to young Mephibosheth, you, you're going to have everything restored to you, but beyond that, you're going to eat at my table. And you might not quite understand what all that means. Mephibosheth does. He is bowed down. I am, I'm, I'm a servant to you. What should, why should you take notice of me? I'm, I'm, I'm like a dead dog. I don't have anything to recommend myself to you. And David says, it is not because of you and your recommendation. It is because of somebody else who long ago spoke up for you. And as you come to this table, it's not because you figured out how to get all forgiven properly. It won't even be because you have analyzed and inspected your heart and you've gone to somebody that you've wronged and you've made it right. It is because there is someone who spoke up for you long ago who died for you who purchased a seat at the table and said, yeah, 
you will always have a seat. There's something implied here that we're getting to. Having a seat at the king's table, yes, every once in a while a guest would be invited. Some dignitary would get a chance. But there is only one category that can know I always have a seat at the table. And that's if you're family. That's if you're a son. That's if you're a daughter. If you are a son or daughter of God, you can know this. He has purchased you with his blood. He is not flimsy. He is not unaware that you are crippled. (laughs) Don't be afraid. I will restore you. And you will always eat at my table. That message is so central to the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel that that gets said four times in the space of about mm, eight verses. Six, seven verses. For there it'll be again in the tenth verse. So that your master's grandson, he's talking now to Zeba, you're going to take care of the land for him, all of your, your servant and your household. Now you, I'm turning you over to Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, and he will always eat at my table. In the 11th verse, then Ziba says to the king, your servant will do whatever you want. I'll do it. And so, the end of the 11th verse, and so Mephibosheth ate at David's table. In the 12th verse, Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And verse 13, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because that's where you'd have to be if you were going to eat at the king's table. It's in the city of David in Jerusalem. And he always ate at the king's table. And by the way, did you know he was lame in both feet? That third time, it says it this way. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's own sons. You, I, need not walk away from today merely a servant. You are invited to the table of Jesus Christ, and you're invited as family, an unbreakable bond. This God who will never turn his back on you, who knows exactly who you are and what you have done. It's that same God. This story where David is a type of Christ in so many ways. No surprise then in that 23rd Psalm we love so much that he would say, you have prepared a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You, Lord God, have invited me to be yours. Do you remember in Luke this scenario? In the 22nd chapter of Luke, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You remember it? And there they are reclining around the table, and he will break the bread, and he will pass the cup after having washed their feet, 
and he will say, I have given everything, everything for you so that you would have a seat at not just this table, but that you would always have a seat at my table. Just like 2 Samuel chapter 9 says, you will always eat at my table. So that in the 19th or the 29th verse of that same chapter, Jesus goes on to say, I confer onto you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one unto me. This is the kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom. Every once in a while, I'll see some movie. The ending scene or some scene involved will, it will be a, a wedding feast. Make no mistake, one of the most powerful metaphors in all of Scripture is Jesus claiming us as his bride, and there is a wedding feast. And in that, those, those movie scenes, some poor unsuspecting person is wandering around looking for what table they're going to be or are supposed to be at, right? Turns out they're not really that wanted at this particular wedding. There is a seat for them, but it's the last seat at the children's table, right? You've seen some movie scene like this, and they're sitting there feeling disrespected and uh, belittled. You know what? As we wind our way around the wedding feast looking for our name on a placard for the table we sit at, and some of us know how crippled we are, and we wonder, is there a table for the cripples? Well, there is, (laughs) But if you keep looking for your name plate on those tables, you're going to notice something peculiar, and that is you are the first pick of Jesus Christ. Might surprise you, haven't played basketball in a while. But if you make your way up there to the head table, to the table that Jesus sits at, that spot right next to him, that's where your name is. And he says this, I have purchased your seat at my table, and you and I are meant to be together forever. This story of David, this incredible friendship of Jonathan, and a young man, Mephibosheth, who from out of nowhere, from his perspective, becomes a son of the king that he wondered on another day if he might have been. Amazing. Father, it's been an odd day around here. Many of us came here expecting one thing and found quite another, and it seemed like it was defined by what we don't have here, some water. Ah, but Lord... The Spirit is symbolized by water and an outpouring, and you have that. You have that for us. So now as we speak across airwaves or a connection to a computer, we bow before you. But we bow before you in a hope that many do not know or understand. We bow before you not as servants, not as grovelers, not as ones hoping we could somehow, somehow beg for your mercy. We come before you knowing you have spoken up for us, that you have articulated your love and desire for us, that you have purchased our place in your kingdom with blood and your very life. And so we come to your table today. 
uh, that we could share in the communion cups and a piece of bread, but scattered across our community today as we come to our own dinner table. Lord God, would you be there right there with us? And as we bow our heads to pray to you, we come to the table and we acknowledge that even our own breakfast, lunch, or dinner table, it is not our table, it is yours. Everything is yours. And we come to be yours, your sons, your daughters. Lord God, thank you for this story of Mephibosheth and David's acceptance and inclusion of him. Thank you for how it foreshadows the communion table and your grand desire to scoop us up, to forgive us, to wash us clean, and to take us with you so we give ourselves at your table. Amen. And so happy Sabbath. We are so glad that we got to worship together with you today. I invite you to walk the lives of the redeemed, those who know they have a seat at the table of the King. Happy Sabbath.